welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. We're coming towards the end of our little series of Grovember-November episodes today, which have been all about helping you grow and plan the next step in your studies and in your life generally. Today's episode goes out to anyone who's considering applying for that most coveted of university courses, medicine. Getting a place at med school can be notoriously competitive, but the good news is there's plenty you can do in your preparation to dramatically improve your chances of getting the offer you want. To talk us through things, I'm joined today by Rohan Agarwal, who's a graduate of medicine at Cambridge. Him and his team at uni admissions have vast experience helping aspiring medics succeed in their applications. So who better to talk us through what it takes to get your offers from med school? The conversation today is particularly focused on British med schools, but I think many of the principles will apply to overseas applications and university courses around the world. I started by asking Rohan about the big building blocks of an application to study medicine. What's involved? So the important thing to be aware of is in the UK, um, the the deadline for applying to medical applications is much earlier than for other courses. So everything uh, to to get into the uh, UK medical school, you have to apply through UCAS. Uh, There are a couple of notable exceptions for private universities like the University of Buckingham, but almost every other university you have to apply through uh, the UCAS service. And for most courses, you have to apply. The deadline for that is the 15th of January. So for instance, if you wanted to study in 2021, in October 2021, most courses you would have to apply by the 15th of January 2021. Medicine is a little bit um, unusual because you have to actually put in an application three months before. So it's the 15th of October 2020, for instance. That's the first big thing that really uh, steps medicine apart. Obviously, the students applying to medicine will have to have very, very high academic grades. But the second thing is that they will almost all have to take an admissions test. We'll talk a little bit more about them. And the final thing is the interview, um, which is um, essentially you don't get a place in medical school without an interview. So the way I like to break it down to students and and parents that come to me, if you imagine a pie chart and you put it like, and slice that into four pieces now. They're not equal. <laughs> Lots of students and parents really worry about the kind of intangibles of things like, should my child be playing rugby? And they've got a grade seven in piano. Was that, how important is that for medical school? The way I like to kind of demonstrate this is I say, well, if you imagine 30% of that pie is devoted to their grades. So that's primarily their GCSE grades, but also what they end up getting predicted for the A-levels. 30% is dependent on their admissions test score and then 30 percent is dependent on their interview score and then the final 10 percent is kind of (laughs) everything else the intangible personal statement the school's reference and so on so that tends to help people put things into context now unfortunately as you can imagine well there's a 
each medical school does things very, very slightly differently. Some use different test methods, some use a different algorithm. So it's impossible to kind of give a, a precise uh, approximation of well, an approximation of how all of them do it. But this is, uh, I think, based on my experience, this is as close as it really gets. Um, so you know, there are some medical schools that when you look at you, if you if you've done not particularly well in your tests, so universities like King's, for instance, whereas others actually don't really care too much about the tests. So obviously that that needs to be taken into context. But given that normally you'd apply for four medical schools. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the other thing. You're only allowed to apply to four instead of five bases to university. Assuming you're applying to four, you'll have to that pie chart will be true generally for most most applicants. So that's a, that's a really good um, kind of broad brushstrokes way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really helpful overview and really interesting to to kind of hear your hear your experience on the the relative importance of the different elements that's that's fascinating um well maybe we can take those in order of of you know when you come to them through the year i I guess the written application is the bit that that rears its head first um what what's your advice on that so i I guess in particular what aspects of the written application perhaps do people worry about most um, and what's your advice uh for, for tackling that so, so the written application is actually the simplest part, and, and students and parents tend to make this an, an incredibly complicated and get far yeah. too worked up about this. In most medical schools, almost all of them, you'll have to write some. Um, you, again, you have to apply through UCAS, and that involves submitting your application with a personal statement. Everything else in the application form, although it's slightly arduous and boring, it is ultimately just administrative work. So you're just entering your GCSEs, you're entering your home address, your email, and so on and so on. There's nothing really there that should require any significant uh, cortical sure. usage. Um, you know, it's just very little kind of work involved. The personal statements are actually the only thing that you can use to kind of set, your, set, set yourself apart compared to your peers from a non-factual basis. Now, what I mean by that is once you've got your grades, those can't be changed. However, whatever you write in your personal statement can obviously be modified and adjusted to make you look, in, um, you know, to make you look good. Now, mm. the, the first thing, and sometimes parents ask me this, is the rule one in the personal statement is please, please don't lie. Uh, it's just a terrible idea. Uh, in particular, it's, it's a terrible idea in pretty much every course, but in particular, it's a terrible idea for med- medics because obviously one of the things that, that um, doctors get told often is that you know there, there is a regu- regulatory body called the General Medical Council or the GMC who essentially oversees all medics and if they don't do and abide by the code of conduct then the GMC can strike them off and actually that's your career over now obviously that's reserved for some fairly large instances but what medical schools look for is how how sincere is an applicant and how likely are they if at all, to break those guidelines. Um, So if they are caught lying or cheating in any tests or in their personal statement, that's actually a very strong indication that that, repeat offences are much more likely than the initial offence. So, And and that can essentially throw away your entire application just on a single technical line. Uh, So please, please don't do that. So stick with the facts. Uh, Obviously, you um, you, you can interpret facts to kind of improve your kind of portrayal but they should all be based on the hard evidence. So, for instance, if you've only done three months of work experience, then that's what you should say. It shouldn't kind of extend the numbers or make them bigger just to kind of impress the interviewers. It rarely does. Uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about work experience as well. Mm. 
So, so that's the first thing in, in the personal statement itself. The second thing is don't to worry too much about it. Very rarely will medical schools reject you completely based on your personal statement itself. Most of the time, they're looking for a few things, check boxes. Um, you know, those things tend to be things like work experience. Uh, just on the note of work experience, normally there's, there's no such thing as a right amount of work experience. And obviously, in the current climate, it's very difficult to, as you can imagine, to get a doctor to, to give you a yeah, get, 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 follow you, let you follow around. You know, in hospitals, they're trying to minimize the number of patients and students. The same thing in GP surgeries. In fact, most GP surgeries are actually being done from people's homes right now. So it is very difficult to get work experience. Online work experience is, is acceptable, according to the, the Medical Council. In terms of work experience, try and get three different sectors. So what I mean by this is try and do something in the voluntary setting, uh, so working in a hospice or a charity shop. Just then try and get something in primary care. So that generally tends to be a GP setting. And then finally something in secondary care, which is a hospital. Generally, a a week of work experience in both primary and secondary is more than sufficient. A month or so in uh, voluntary work is obviously fine as well. The more you have, the better it obviously will be, but those are kind of sufficient. And what I tell students is that if you can talk to your interviewer for half an hour, sorry, not half an hour, five minutes, half an hour would be crazy. Yeah, five, five minutes, direct conversation, that's plenty of material for you to be talking about. So most of the time, interviewers aren't really looking for what exactly – you know, they're not looking to drill down on exactly what you learned. It's more about what you did and what you could what you could do and reflect on. Right. Work experience is there just to show that you understand what life as a medic is going to be like, and, and not the kind of perhaps the, the the life you've seen in some medical serials like House or Scrubs, yeah. for instance. Um, um, so, so that's the second thing about the personal statement is is obviously make sure you've got your work experience. The third thing is. The majority of your personal statement should really be focused on the motivation as to why you want to apply for medicine. Loads of students that we work with talk a lot about the fact that you know, that they play county cricket or they um, are an Olympic rower or a drama enthusiast since the age of three. All of those are fantastic things, but actually they don't really t- tell me um, as an interviewer why exactly you'd be a good doctor. And ultimately, that's what they want to see. So. Yeah. About what we say is about 70% to 80% of your statement should really be talking about your motivation for medicine. And obviously, you can use work experience to do that, but we recommend no more than two or three sentences on your extracurriculars. They're there to show you that actually you're not, you're probably not a robot, uh, yeah. but actually, the majority of what they want to see is it's a real passion for the subject and an understanding of what it involves to be a doctor. And that's very difficult. So, so, so those would be kind of the, the main two. Obviously, you know, it's, it's important to kind of mention that whilst the personal statement isn't the kind of be-all and end-all, it's still worth spending a substantial amount of time on it. But what we generally tend to say is once you start getting into the territory where you've had about six to eight redrafts, you're probably almost 90% there. And actually, from that point onwards, I don't know if you remember from when days you applied, Will, but you're just kind of ch- changing you know, small words or sentences or even just punctuation. At that point, it stops really being significant. So if you imagine the admissions tutors have to read thousands of these, they don't really have the time to analyze each comma and apostrophe. Yeah, either. yeah. Excellent. Uh, so, so don't lie, <laughs> get the work experience in there, uh, focus on motivation um, and, and you know, really understand, uh, conveying your understanding of, of, yeah. of what it means to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, that, sounds, that sounds great. That sounds great. Should we talk about, uh, should we talk about exams next? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think before we kind of move on to the exams thing, it's important to think a little bit about the selection of universities. Now, obviously, in most most cases, you, you kind of just find the course that you like the look of and just apply there. Medicine's a little bit more complicated, as you may expect. Um, so it, it's not just enough to uh, just just pick four universities that you really want to go to and just apply, because for reasons that will become very clear, that could end up being a very bad decision from a strategic perspective. And this really ties into the admissions test side of things. So the personal statement has to be submitted and the whole UCAS form has to go off before the 15th. But there are a few things that actually have to happen before. And this is where the medical process becomes a little bit interesting because there are two tests that are required by that a lot of medics will take it. So the UCAT is taken by about 35,000 students every year in the UK. And then the BMAT, the second test, uh, is taken by about twelve to 15,000, depending on the year. Uh, and, and they're very, very different tests. They test very different skills. Uh, there's a little bit of overlap between, between them, but not much. And actually, pretty much every university in the UK will require, uh, require uh, medical applicants to sit one of those two. You won't have, have to sit both for one university, but you will have to sit one. Now, that has important implications because the way it works is normally um, the UCAT um, takes place well, it's a strange test. You actually, do you remember taking your driving test, driving theory test? I do. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's exactly in the same place. It's, uh, it actually takes place in uh, in the Pearson View centres. So, so you actually go in. It's a computer based test. It takes a couple of hours, and, and it's in exactly the same centre, which is really surreal experience. And, and it actually carries on and t- takes place for several months. So the first test testing day is normally around early July, and then it carries on all the way until early October. So you've actually got. Uh, about three three months to kind of take the test, which is a huge period of time. Everyone gets shown a different, slightly different test, and then you get your results. Uh, and this is the exciting bit: you get your results on the same day. So um, you get your result as soon as you walk out of the exam room, which is really interesting because that opens up some strategic options. Now, um, essentially, this, this test is marked on a scale of zero to three thousand six hundred. The average score is about 2,400. Depends on the year, but give or take 2,400. Uh, and the test consists of five sections, four of which are scored and one of them, which is kind of a, a situational judgment test, which isn't scored in the same way. As you can imagine, if you've done particularly well in the in the UCAT, so say instead of getting a 2,400, you end up getting a, a 3,200. It makes sense then to apply to medical schools that we know value the UCAT very, very highly. So mm. if you imagine, remember when we talked about King's College London, they love the UCAT. They actually use that to shortlist aggressively. So if you imagine 100 students apply to King's and you know that you're going to get an interview and they only shortlist about 30%, instantly your chances of getting into King's College have gone from 10 in 1 to 3 in 1. Hmm. And that's a huge, huge improvement, obviously. At the same time, of course, if you uh, if you have an unfortunate day in the UCAT and you don't do as well, then it's possible for you to actually not apply to those medical schools and choose, instead choose medical schools that perhaps don't care about the UCAT as much. Hmm. Now, the, 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 the thing to kind of take on further with that is imagine that you have an absolutely atrocious day or even worse, you just miss the UCAT deadline. You just don't have time to take it for you know, personal reasons. There's still an option uh, available, which is you can take the BMAT and apply. So actually, as you can imagine, this gives you a lot of strategic depth because before you apply for your 
before you actually click the UCAT submit button on the 15th of October, you know exactly what the UCAT score is. So you can plan, and you know, the general advice we give to students is try and pick two UCAT universities and two BMAT universities. Unfortunately, this year, it's not possible to know your BMAT score before you stick in your application. So BMAT universities tend to be more, well, one, they tend to be more competitive. So they tend to be the likes of UCL, Oxford, Imperial, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the second is because you don't find out your BMAT score um, this year in particular, before the application, they are intrinsically risky. So we have some students who want to apply to places like Cambridge, Imperial, UCL, and um, and Brighton, for instance. That's that's a big no-no on our books because actually, if you screw up the the BMAT, that could be a you instantly get rejected from four very competitive medical schools based on a single test. So it's a really interesting principle of kind of spreading your risk a little bit. Uh, you know, don't have all your tests in one basket yeah 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 it makes sense and fascinating to to get into that that's 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 really really interesting okay so perhaps you could give us a little bit of an idea of what to expect when we take those tests i know you mentioned there's there's a situational judgment element Mm -hmm. what else is going to be tested and any thoughts on how we might be able to to prepare to do as well as possible yeah that's a really good question so if you read the official guidance from the UCAT and BMAC um, admissions services, as I think the boards actually administer the tests, um, they make they give a lot of recommendations as to actually how you can become become familiar with the the test format. So the first thing to do is to actually understand what exactly you'll be examined on. Now, for the UCAT, there are five sections, all very slightly different in time length and number of questions, but essentially we've talked about the situational judgment test, which comes last. Um, there are also four other sections, and then, as you can imagine, there, it's essentially an IQ test. So there's a verbal reasoning component, which is essentially you answering questions on a passage. Um, there's a math section. Very simply, you get shown lots of tables and data and have to figure out uh, essentially answers under time pressure. There's a for non-verbal reasoning question. So as you can imagine, in the IQ test, you have things like shapes changing, sizes, and um, rotational uh, questions on symmetry, those kind of pattern identification. And then the final thing is a decision-making section, which is actually probably the closest the UCAT becomes to the BMAT. Uh, essentially, that's problem-solving or puzzle-solving, <laughs> depending on your perspective. It's really important that students prepare for this and prepare for it significantly, to the extent that we actually say, look, treat it like a, a mini A-level uh, that you were doing over a, over a couple of months. Sometimes students fall into the trap because the, the admissions testing service actually is very hard to prepare for these exams. But in in, our, in my experience, we've seen students go from an average of 2,400 all the way to 3,200. Wow. And, and it's really just dependent on how much Im- improvement and practice you're able to get in during the short period of time you may start. Obviously, as you can imagine, well, some of the things like verbal reasoning and nonverbal reasoning, they take uh, they take a fair amount of time to start improving. Whilst, so whilst it's important and it's very easy to be able to improve things like maths fairly quickly, it's much, much harder to improve soft skills. Uh, they take much, much longer. So my first advice uh, for anyone thinking about medicine is to actually start looking at papers straight away and, and start doing questions. And so there's lots of there's lots of free websites where you can do um, loads and loads of questions. You know, now obviously there's a few textbooks as well that that you can get a hold of. But just introducing yourself to the, and make, becoming more familiar with them will help hugely um, in, in kind of your general preparation. And, and obviously, uh, the closer you get to your 
to your test day, you can start ramping things up. So we we, we get our students started um, as early as around January for the UCAT. And I normally say that look, if your test is, we, we normally recommend they also take it in August. So, and that's because when schools open in September, they'll when they go back, they'll also want to they'll want to meet their friends. There'll be a lot of work that's given to them in school, and also they'll they'll be busy with their personal statements and finalizing things before they submit. So, if they can complete their UCAT test before they go to school, that actually is a huge weight off their shoulders, rather than trying to make it one of the worst tempers of their life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the first thing is really to to kind of get a hold of papers and start working through. St- the latest you really want to be starting, uh, if you're taking it in August, is June. Like that's the absolute latest, really. I mean, any later than that, and it's, it's just very, very suboptimal. But the, the earliest someone starts, and it doesn't have to be huge amounts of time. You know, it can just be a handful of questions a day, and then slowly ramping that up. Most students will take a break during the summer uh, summer exams so around. April, May, June, uh, a few students will kind of taper off their preparation or ease up on it and then go back into it intensely. That tends to work quite well. So, so, so that's the first thing. The second thing is practicing the questions under time conditions. And, and this is true for the BMAT as well. The reason for that is actually if most students took the, the test and instead of two hours, they were given four hours, they would actually have a substantial amount of time available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and therefore, they, their score would improve massively. So the questions in the test aren't actually that difficult, to be honest with you. Yeah, you know, if you, if you just had all the time you wanted, you'd probably score close to 100%. The, the thing that actually makes it difficult is the time pressure. Um, so sometimes students kind of make the mistake of they just do the test and take they do it over several days or they'll only do a limited number of questions. And, and then they kind of have this falsely reassuring sense that actually I'm doing pretty well. So, so whenever I speak to someone, and they're telling me a little bit how you know how well they're doing. Well, the next follow-up question I always ask is, "Are you doing that under time conditions?" And you'll be surprised how many say no. Um, so, so that's the second thing: is really make sure you're revising under under practice conditions. Third thing is, if you keep making the same mistake over and over, please get help. Now, that doesn't have to be a tutor or another company. It can just be someone um, you know, one of your peers or your or your teachers. I, I often see students kind of plateauing after the first 10 20 hours of study on a, on a certain topic because they keep making the same mistakes over and over and they don't quite know how to improve um so so you know and, and that can get very frustrating very quickly because you think that you actually this is the best i'll ever be yeah uh, and, and that's you know it's important to realize that actually that's just a stumbling block and, and your score will rise to the level of your incompetence and i don't mean that in a, in a mean way i just mean that incompetence doesn't have to be academic it can just be your ability to learn and uh, you know obviously that the more you you understand about how to learn and how to improve yourself and then how to actually um improve your kind of ability to assimilate information and look for patterns the faster you'll improve in general so so, so that's the, the ucat in kind of a, a whirlwind tour of it uh, essentially it's a it's an iq test but it's one that students do and should prepare for because it does lead to significant improvements it's almost completely to the opposite spectrum of the BMAT. Um, so the BMAT is three sections. It's also a two-hour paper. Um, it's normally ri- written on paper, actually, but uh, for the first year ever, this was done online, uh, which um, my understanding of things is it didn't go particularly well. There's been lots of issues with the administration <laughs> of, of it. Um, and, and, the, and the way it works is there are three sections. The first section is a problem-solving and critical thinking section. Um, so this is 
similar to the UCAT decision-making, but the questions tend to be more complex. Uh, so you can expect things like um, small paragraphs followed by the questions like, which of the following best illustrates the conclusion or which of the following is the best illustrates the flaw in the above argument. There'll be things like cubes uh, unwrapped and you'll have to try and figure out which net is actually the correct cube. Uh, questions on things like, um, you know, what are the angles between the clock, those kind of questions. So stuff that you've probably all encountered in your life, but perhaps not as intensely. And for those of you doing critical thinking uh, uh, AS, it's actually very, very similar. It's actually a huge advantage to do that. Uh, so if you have the option of doing so, that's, that's obviously uh, something I'd recommend. That's the first section. That's one hour. And then the second section is a science section. Now, this is the one that students tend to underprepare in somewhat. Um, so there's a biology, a chemistry, a maths, and a physics component to it. So it's just under 30 questions, 27 questions, and you have half an hour. So just about a minute per question. And this is where students tend to really get stuck because lots of students think that I'll be fine. It's just GCSE level. Now, actually doing some of these fairly complex calculations in in a minute is actually not that easy. And actually knowing which calculations to do is quite difficult. The, the second thing is, even though it's GCSE level, some students, if you've not taken, you know, lots of students will drop physics or maths and then they won't take it at A level, particularly physics. Now it's GCSE physics, but actually GCSE physics across many, many exam boards. So if you've not done GCSE physics across three or four examples, which very few people have, hopefully. Most of them won't have covered every single topic. I see. So you, you might have some gaps in there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there is a specification, but as you can imagine with some of these things, they're, they're not hugely helpful or precise at times. So it is important to go through each um, topic in physics line by line. Uh, there is a much more detailed, assumed subject knowledge guide. And, you know, that's the first thing we, we make our students do is grab a copy of that and work through that and make sure all of that's committed to memory. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the second thing. And then the third section is actually a really interesting one. Um, it's, it's, it's an essay. Uh, and the essay normally takes the format of, they'll give you a statement. Uh, old days, it used to be some, someone by a statement by Osler or, or a Voltaire. But right. then, uh, this year there was a, there was a question on um, the, the use of uh, electronic technology. So things like how, how do... How, how do patients use technology when they're walking? And so, if you imagine when I when I when I was doing clinics, I used to get patients coming to me and say, "Oh, well, this is what I found on the internet with a with a twenty page printer." And I used to be like, "Oh my goodness, what, how do I how do I manage this consultation now?" So there was an essay on to what extent should patients be allowed to use the internet, um, in the, and, and how much should that form form part of their treatment. And, and obviously, the, the, the really interesting thing about the, the BMAT Section 3 essay is, unlike most essays of school that we're used to, or we were used to, there's a strict length limit. So you're only given one sheet of A4 paper. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. So normally, the, the standard response, the way to get a, a top grade used to just be, uh, just write a lot of good quality stuff, actually. In this one, it forces you to, to really think about what you're going to say. So, you know, um, most many students when they first start um, section three they kind of rush into just writing the essay and actually that's a really big no-no they really yeah. need to take their time appraise the the whole in information kind of really plan their essay out because actually writing a page most students can do that in 10 minutes relatively easily um, so to the extent where we say actually take take at least 10 15 minutes to plan your essay and that sets things up much much more better 
I think great advice generally for approaching exam essays actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, often students you know, think that quantity is better than quality and in the eyes of the examiner, who's probably going through 400 of these, <laughs> they, they probably just want to see something really short, but succinct and, and high quality that summarizes the key points clearly. I was actually taught by, so, so my supervisor at Cambridge was actually Dr. Roger Carpenter. So he's actually the guy who invented, invented, created, however you want to do, describe. He, he's, the, he's the chap who was the brainchild behind the BMAT. Oh, right. And um, he, we used to talk a little bit about what he looks for in essays and actually one of my friends, he was interviewed by him, uh, by Roger Carpenter, in his Cambridge interview. And uh, he used to say that actually loads of students just kind of missed the point. In fact, that's exactly what he got. He said, I think you missed the point of this essay, my boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he used to say that actually it, it's not the what, – what they're looking for is conceptual profundity and, and conciseness rather than just the, the ability to illustrate a relatively moderate or weak point with hundreds of examples and I think that's really important to you know, hammer home into the students is actually they're not looking for a list of kind of arguments. They're looking for two or three arguments, pick the best ones, illustrate them concisely. Um, so, so essentially it's a, it's a summary of a thesis rather than kind of a, a huge um, dissertation, as it were. And what, what do you mean by conceptual profundity? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. So essentially, to, to give you an example, one of my second year essays uh, was uh, one of my first essay was what does the brain do? <laughs> and that was it. That was, that was all I got asked. And I, had, and I was given a week to write about it. And there were some of my peers who wrote reams and reams and reams of, of kind of notes and, and kind of submitted huge long essays. And actually what, what Roger and what, what Roger Carpenter was really looking for was a concise way of describing what the, what the brain actually did and you know, actually if you break it down in in his words um the brain was akin to a computer you, you have a stimulus you put it into the computer it processes and it spits out a response and so what he was looking for was essentially that and obviously a little bit more advanced than that what he didn't want was kind of a list of well the brain looks after the homeostasis of ph and term temperature and osmolality and potassium level the brain does a lot of things but essentially all of what the brain does could be summarized as input goes in, process happens, and response occurs. So, so that was a, that was a concept, and, and you know, I, wouldn't, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> people, yeah. people much cleverer than me have come up with it, but essentially, it was it was being able to express a concept in with complete clarity and succinctness. Well, that's 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 been so interesting. Some some fantastic advice there. So you know, prepare prepare consistently, prepare early prepare under time conditions, uh, identify your where you're making the mistakes and go out of your way to fix them. Uh, and then particularly for the BMAT, uh, don't be complacent on the science, check you know all the content you're supposed to know mm. and uh, you know apply good uh, all those good essay technique uh, concepts you were, you were talking about to, to really shine on the, the essay portion as well. Assuming all that goes well, we get our invitation to, to interview. Uh, so, this is the uh, you know the final hurdle in the process, and perhaps fair to say the one that uh, is 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 most capable of causing uh, sleepless nights and anxiety in the wrong hands. You know, just give us a little flavour of what we might expect to face at an interview, uh, and again, any tips you've got on how to to prepare for that. Yeah, so uh, as, as 
I think you're absolutely right. If you if you've got got an interview, congratulations, pat yourselves on the back. Now, absolutely. The, the first thing to mention is if we, if we recall the dates for the tests, um, the UCAT finishes in early October, and the BMAT normally finishes in the first week in November, and then you'll have this two or three week period of lull where nothing seems to happen. Some of your friends may start getting interview invites or rejections, but actually. By the end of November or at least early December, you probably have had, maybe if you if you've been good, you, you you'll have had an interview invite. Now, what lots what lots of students do is they'll they'll wait and, and they'll wait until they get their interview invite. Their offer for the interview will be normally give them five to ten days notice, ten days if they're lucky. Sometimes they'll give three weeks, which is very rare, but it does happen. So a lot of the time, students will just kind of wait to start their preparation that's just terrible terrible wait wait to do it yeah week or two is pretty limited it is and and i think that the key thing with with interviews is unless you've gone through the process before uh, and unless you've gone gone through and, and secured lots of jobs most people most 17 18 year olds will just never have had an interview in, in this setting yeah. before you know i just don't think they appreciate that so the the most important tip I can give really about interview preparation is please start it as early as you can. And I'm talking June, July, if possible, just assume you're going to get an interview. I think it's, I've always, I'm always surprised by how defeated some students are that they say, well, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll start interview preparation if I hear back. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's just setting yourself up for failure. And that's really important because it's not a test. Uh, I mean, there, there are obviously a hurdle and a test, as you described, but they're not a written examination. And I think that's important to kind of let that sink in. Because if you imagine a test like the BMAT, uh, whilst it's not it's not recommended to prepare for in a few weeks, it's certainly possible. You may not do as well as you wanted to. But at least most case, most cases in the West, we're used to taking exams from a very young age. So we're ingrained in how to start preparing for them, how to what you learn, the content you revise, you make any adjustments, you kind of rinse and repeat. That's the kind of general formula: is you have knowledge that needs to be simulated and then understood, and then you kind of answer it. Interviews are completely different. Um, interviews are like trying to write an essay verbally, and and that's a very different skill to being able to take your time and um, really cogitate an argument or analyze a problem and answer it in relatively under under your own terms in interviews if someone asks you a different difficult question you have about max about five seconds to give a reasonable response without looking like you're either stalling for time or you don't know what you're talking about yeah and and that's a really different different skill set and so you know these are soft skills and they take months to improve so if you are listening to this and you haven't started preparing for an interview then the best time is is now you know even even if you're applying for the following year just a little bit because actually when students when when we do practice with their interviews students actually say well this is actually really really difficult medical interviews themselves come in all sorts and shapes and varieties there are things like panel interviews where you walk into a room and it's the standard interview format that you'd expect where there's several people looking at you anywhere between two to eight <laughs> the max i've heard of is eight people and that, that really is quite a lot wow asking you questions in turn uh, or this this new format called uh, the multiple mini interview, uh, shortened to MMI. And MMI interviews are actually very similar to the exams that most medical students and even doctors end up sitting. And so they're called OSCEs. 
observe simulated clinical examinations. Essentially, if you imagine there are 10 rooms um, next to each other, and there is an examiner in each of those 10 rooms, and there are 10 students. The way an MMI works is each interviewer will ask a question to each student. And after a certain period of time, a bell rings. And when that bell rings, the interviews stay where they are, but the students move from one room into the next room. And then they get asked the second question by the second interviewer. A similar period of time passes and, and another bell rings and so on and so on. And they carry on rotating until they've gone through each of those 10 stations. Uh, it's designed to minimize biases, uh, which can form uh, quite early on in interview processes. Uh, and some and some stations may not even have an examiner. So there may just be, you may just get given a problem like a mathematical problem to do at one of those stations. The exact content on them can be hugely variable. So some students have had to tell, they've had to tell a, a friend, or in, in some cases, effectively, they're an actor that they've been hired in, that, that they that the student, i.e. The, the person who's being interviewed, has run over their cat. So it's a role play in communication skills. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it sounds crazy, but actually it's surprisingly difficult. Actually, one of the one of my advice to people is actually make sure you practice that exact same scenario because it seems to come up every in some medical school somewhere every year. And uh, my top advice for that is please try and not laugh during it, which is just I know it sounds it sounds very obvious, but you'd be amazed by how how silly this, this because it's such a silly scenario, people do intend to take it take it seriously. Got to take your bedside manner seriously. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so, so the questions can be, you know, communication stations. There can be questions that you typically associate with interviews. Things like um, why medicine. Uh, that, that's a hugely, hugely important question. And you know, if you don't prepare for that question, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So please don't turn up to your interviews without not having rehearsed an answer to this. You are meant to have a slick answer to that question, amongst others. But that one definitely. There's also things like tell me about a time when you've worked well in a team or when you uh, communicated well. There, there can also be other times like what have you read recently. So the exact questions can be of a huge variety. You know, you know we've obviously there's a huge list of them online, which um, yeah we can link to. The main thing to say is students sometimes get too worried about what exactly an MMI versus a panel interview is actually. If you imagine an MMI as kind of just being multiple short panel interviews, that's probably the best way of thinking of them. The principles that are covered in the preparation for a panel interview are almost identical to those in MMIs. Um, you have to be slightly more careful of the time in MMIs and obviously the the fact that the interview hasn't really built up rapport with you. But apart from that, the, the kind of material and the content itself is very, very translatable. So, so the first thing really to, to kind of when you start preparing for these interviews is get a book or at least a list of questions that, that essentially contain lots and lots of interview practice questions. Give them to your friend, if your parents, a brother, sister, and just get them to ask you those questions. And actually what you'll probably realize is in the first time, you, first few times you ask these questions, you won't have a clue how to answer them. Yeah. And that's really common because actually, and you know, that that's that's important because most of the time, students think they're going to be fine in their interviews. Then they kind of do this exercise and they realize, oh my goodness, maybe I won't be. And then they actually start taking it much more seriously. So it serves as a wake-up call. That's really important because once you've kind of got over the fear of, it's really common with other industries as well. So lots of people don't like being listened to when they're on the phone, when they're playing a piece of music or when they're painting. They just don't like others around. It's very yeah. similar to interviews. 
Uh, and if you're one of those type of people, you'll have to get used to the the kind of unfamiliarity of being asked questions by a stranger, uh, which will influence the rest of your life to a certain extent. Uh, and that that's really important. So once you get over that initial awkwardness, then you can actually start looking at building frameworks. Whilst it's important to have uh, content ready for questions like why medicine, why not nursing, where do you see yourself in five years' time, all of those kind of common questions. If you imagine that, that there's hundreds of questions that could potentially be asked in a medical school interview, it's not really possible to prepare answers to them. Yet you should prepare answers to them. You shouldn't just go in trying to wing it. Uh, the way we recommend students kind of start preparing is actually by building and teaching them frameworks. So a really, really simple framework could just be things like in any situational question or any, any, any question where there's conflict involved, uh, we teach the 3R method. Uh, so that's essentially something like, tell me about a situation which was where you had to overcome difficulty. And in, in this scenario, what we say is, well, you recognize, which is the first R, um, you resolve, and then you report. So an example might be, well, I, I sensed that two of my friends, there was a lot of infighting between them. And what I did was X, and as a result, this improved. And I'm, I then made it, made my friends aware about what exactly had gone on uh, to, to improve their situation. What loads of students do will kind of, kind of just do one of the three R's. That framework could then be applied to multiple multiple areas uh, and multiple question types. You know, it could be done for tell me about a time when you had a difficult or challenging colleague. Tell me about a time when you had conflict within a team. Those kind of questions. So those kind of frameworks allow you to use whatever material you have in a in a multiple for for several questions. Yeah, yeah, uh, which which is obviously great. Uh, and then the final bit of advice really is to try and practice with people that you don't know. So once you've kind of comfortable with the first person who's been helping in the initial phases, try and arrange some mock interviews. That could be a school teacher, it could be a tutor, it could just be mum and dad or someone you've not spoken to. But generally, the more unfamiliar they are, the better it is for your experience because actually that's what the real interview will be like. Look, that, that sounds like a fantastic set of advice for for the interview and and indeed for the rest of the application process. Uh, you know, a common theme throughout all of that is is the importance of getting that preparation in, um, and you know, you, you kind of underline the importance of of getting in the prep uh, and getting mm. it in nice and early uh, throughout, um, and particularly for that last area, uh, you know, where you're wanting sort of mock mock interviews with people. Mm. The more unfamiliar, the better. Um, there's obviously lots of ways to do that, but I know one way is through the services you offer uh, to, to students who are hoping to, to become medics. So, uh, but perhaps as we kind of come towards the end, this would be a good moment to just talk a little bit about what you you offer to people uh, if they are looking for a bit of extra help uh, with their application for, for med school, and uh, you know how the process works and uh, where where they'd go to find out more. Uh, sure. So essentially what we do with students is we like to work with them um, for, for not just a, a week or two. We like to work with them for a much longer period of time. So typically we work with students from six to 12 months, um, ideally even longer. But obviously not everyone comes to us and finds out about us as, as young as we'd like them to. Uh, essentially what we do is we work with them for an extended period of time and we cover their entire personal statement, their admissions test, their interview, the, essentially the whole application process from start to finish. The way we work is... We like to speak to the students first uh, in a fair amount of detail, but also to the parents. Uh, and and you know, sometimes parents call us and say, well, can't my student just enroll? Can't my child just get onto your program? Actually, it's really important to us that we assess and really make, before we accept a student on, we're sure that they're going to be a good fit for, for us. Last year, more than 
30,000 people applied to study medicine and there were less than 5,000 spaces. So medicine is very, very competitive. Normally success rates vary between anywhere from 7% to 20%, depending on the medical school. And, and we have to be sure that the student we're picking is going to have a reasonable chance of succeeding. Um, so to give you some context, well, last year, more than 80% of our students were successful with their medical school applications. And obviously, wow. one element of that is what we do does work. Um, it, it is a very rigorous, thorough program. We kind of take them through every single thing that they need to do. But the second thing is we do need the raw materials to be there. Uh, so and you might be thinking, well, what, what are the raw materials? It's obviously an, a great, fantastic academic background. So majority A's and A stars, so sevens, eights, and nines of GCSE. But also, secondly, more importantly, is that enthusiasm and hunger for their subject, uh, for science, to really be a doctor of the future. And, and if we've got that, then, you know, and, and we then the next step is for us to speak to you, get a better understanding of your requirements, how much work you've got to do, and then we'll be able to kind of give you a recommendation based on our years of experience as to whether we think we can work with you or not. The best way to do that is to go to the website. So that's www.uneedmissions.co.uk. And just book a consult in with, uh, be either with me or my team. Fantastic. Well, Rowan, thank you ever so much. This has been excellent. Well, thanks very much, Rohan. If you're considering an application for medicine and want to maximise your chances, I can highly recommend the team at Uni Admissions. I'd know many of them personally, and those results, they just speak for themselves. I've even persuaded Rohan to offer a little something extra to you as an exam study expert podcast listener. So if you're interested in uh, getting in touch with them, if you mention that you're an exam study expert podcast listener when you apply, they'll be happy to offer you an extra mock interview absolutely free. Just go to uniadmissions.co.uk to get the ball rolling. That's uniadmissions.co.uk. And as I say, if you mention you're an exam study expert podcast listener, they'll be happy to include an extra mock interview for you, completely free of charge. Wishing you every success in your applications, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. If you've got exams coming up, you can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades, all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.